spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Rodney and I always say that God sent us into each other's lives so purposefully at the time he did, because he knew we'd need each other to get through some of the hardest things to ever happen to either one of us. I lost my grandma and Rodney lost his mom. We had each other to lean on, but we were adults. We had memories with them. They were at all of the big life events. But my stepchildren had an even harder experience. They had wonderful memories, yes, but their sweet granny wasn't going to physically be there for their weddings or for the birth of their children. That's hard, especially when the loss was so sudden. One of the last times my stepdaughter spent with her granny, they had wine together. They took silly pictures, and she still has one of those pictures up in her house. She kept the wine bottle. Those items are more priceless to her than nearly anything. The same is true for Nicole Stevenson. She was 16 when she lost her grandparents. But the day before they were brutally and senselessly murdered, Nicole had made a Facebook post with a picture of herself and a group of friends, accompanied with a comment about being so tall. Her mamaw had commented, quote, You may be the tallest, but you're also the best, end quote. That memory. That comment, the snapshot Nicole took of it, is priceless to her now. We hold on to what we have left. When we don't have the physical person to hug tight, we put value into the things they touched or the words they said. Most of the family, the friends, the neighbors, the church family, heck, even strangers who met the couple at the center of our case this week have things to hold on to. They touched so many people in such a positive way that it's hard to believe that they met the fate they did. This is the story of Bill and Peggy Stevenson. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast and to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, 
and listen to what's brewing this week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, Maggie, the case this week, it hit home so much for me. And I know it will for you, too, on multiple levels. First, that Bill and Peggy Stevenson were 74 years old when they were murdered on May 29th, 2011. Wow. Yeah, and that, the pictures of them, it just makes me think about my own grandparents, especially my grandma, the one who I mentioned in the intro, and my granny, who is currently, oh, she always has been, but I think especially so currently, so brave and inspiring as she's battling cancer. Mm -hmm. And literally every elderly person I'm in love with. So (laughs) there's Me too. Anthony and I love America's Got Talent. Um, And so we were watching the latest episode because you know we're always behind but there's like mm-hmm. this old man and i think he's gonna sing and he has this little hat on and he's so cute i love I old know. people i do too like in love and like cold hands so precious yes and that was bill and peggy so that i think makes it especially heartbreaking and the second reason why i think this case was so personal for me is that Bill and Peggy were also very religious mm-hmm. and Sleuth Hounds, Maggie and I both grew up in church and religion. It just has always been such a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Tell so like the story, was, tell the story about whatever you want. Oh, Bible sword drill. Yeah. Okay. So when I was younger, I went to nationals and Bible sword drill. So you would have to like, Stand there, and there would be different categories. Sometimes they would name the book of the Bible, and they would say, Draw your swords, and you'd pull your Bible up, and then they would say, Charge, and you would go, and you would have to turn to where the book was, and you would have to name the book in front of it, that book, and then the book after it, or they'd name a verse, or they would name um, a biblical character, and you would have to find it. And so, yeah, I went to nationals. Mm-hmm. Look at Allison's little celebrity. Here we go. But yeah, I was at church growing up every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, vacation Bible school, revivals, church camp, everything. Mm -hmm. And it seems like every memory I have of church growing up, there were always those elderly couples that I can remember who, number one, made the best food for church dinners. Yes, yes. And they always had candy. Yes. And hugs to pass out. That's the other thing. And that's what Bill and Peggy sounded like to me. So I had the pleasure of speaking to Beth Stevenson Victor, and that's Bill and Peggy's daughter. And she had so many stories, Maggie, that show exactly the kind of people her parents were. My favorites that she told me about were hearing just these stories that revealed their love of people. So Peggy was all the time making her famous pumpkin cookies to deliver to, yes, to deliver to others living in their community. And Beth also told me that, you know, in the church bulletin, it would list everybody whose birthday was that month, that her mom would write cards to every church member on their birthdays. There was a lady that did that um, in my church, and I loved always getting the birthday cards from her. And I want to be that person. I do, too. 
I know. I tell Rodney all the time, I want to be the kind of grandparent that's the same as I viewed my grandma and my granny. Yeah. And there was even a young child in that apartment condo community where Bill and Peggy lived who made himself at home by stopping by Bill and Peggy's all the time. And he even called them grandma and grandpa. Oh, that's so sweet. I I feel like that says a lot about how they treated him, you know, Mm -hmm. and how he viewed them. And then there were these stories about Bill loving to go fishing and literally anyone and everyone who would go with him, he would go fishing with. (laughs) (laughs) And Peggy played the organ at church and I heard stories about Bill sharing his faith with people. He actually was involved in a truck stop ministry that Hmm. he had started 25 years earlier. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. So when Bill and Peggy didn't show up to church on Sunday morning, the rest of the congregation knew that something was wrong because they would have let someone know that they wouldn't be at church. Right. It's it's weird that they're not there. Yes. And I read that a family member actually went to their residence to check on them, thinking maybe Peggy had fallen ill. Beth told me that she did have several health problems. So she had IBS rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia. So she might have fallen ill and not been at church, but it was odd that neither one of them were there. Or that they didn't let someone know. Right. So when that person went to their residence to check on them, the scene at their home was one that would haunt anyone who knew the Stevensons. Mm. The first shocking detail was that this quiet, loving couple for whom not a single soul had anything bad to say had both been stabbed and bludgeoned. Oh, my gosh. Right. So, yeah. So who could possibly have wanted to harm this sweet couple, let alone for them to suffer? Right. And this is one of those scenes, Maggie. It had to have been so surreal that you just wanted to blink your eyes really hard, thinking that you were going to wake up and realize that this was just some horrid nightmare. Like, this can't be reality. Mm-hmm. And I just picture them, and again, I kind of mentioned this before, when I picture Bill and Peggy and I hear these stories about them, because he was a truck stop minister, maybe that's what brought this picture into my head, but it reminded me of this preacher I had at my church when I was younger. His name was Preacher Davenport. And he taught all of the little kids in the church that if we ever saw him out in town, like at the grocery store or wherever, mm-hmm. that we would say, hey, preacher, that's my preacher. Like that. Yeah. And he would have us like recite it. And years later, he came back to visit our church because he had had to move out of town several years before. And I had been so young when he was actually at our church that I didn't recognize him when he came back, but he called me by name. And it was that recognition that mattered so much to me to this day. He saw me and he knew me. And that's the same impression that I get when I talk to anyone about the Stevensons, that they just made people feel seen and acknowledged. And who would ever want to hurt somebody like that though? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's also the feeling that Detective Coy Cox, he's the lead investigator on this case, feels as well. I asked him about his pull to get this case solved. 
and why he feels so dedicated. And anybody who knows anything about this case will, number one, one of the first things they'll say is how dedicated Detective Cox is to solving this case. And I guess I wondered where the root of that dedication was. So I asked him about it in an interview that I had with him. And he stated that this was his case originally. So he has been on this case from the very beginning. So Detective Cox and his partner deal with cold cases. And he said that they feel a personal conviction with all of them. But he said it's kind of hard because that personal conviction is, in his words, quote, a hard thing to put into compartments every night and go home, Mm -hmm. end quote. But obviously they do their best. And in fact, I think his determination is clear in the Stevenson case through the fact that Detective Cox has said multiple times in various sources, including his discussion with me, that he doesn't want to retire until this specific case is solved. Wow. Yeah. And he refuses to call it a cold case. The closest he'll come is calling it an old case because he has such strong conviction that there can be closure. Well, I like you, Detective Cox. Oh, you would definitely like him. I I had respect for him before interviewing him and then even more after her. <laughs> and in, it's in my opinion, Maggie, that there's no better person than Detective Cox to have on this case. He was previously deputized as a U.S. Marshal doing money laundering cases in the eastern part of the state. And when law enforcement got to the scene for the Stevenson case, they knew it already. And you'll see here in just a second when I give you some of the details. But they knew immediately that it would be an extremely complicated one. And so once they saw it, they knew to call Detective Cox because he had experience dealing with several complicated murders in the past. So Maggie, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what makes this case so complicated. Okay. Unlike a lot of the cases, there aren't stories or details or warnings ahead of time that anything bad would happen. So there aren't threatening phone calls. There's not conversation with family about anything troubling that had happened recently. So this is like just random? Well, I don't want to necessarily say the crime itself is random, but there's no expectation that anything bad is going to happen. It's literally nothing and then boom, the crime scene. Mm. Bill and Peggy had actually and I got this from my conversation with Beth, had attended their granddaughter's graduation on Friday night, and then their bodies were discovered Sunday morning. Hmm. So, like, the very night after attending their granddaughter's graduation, this happens. But, Maggie, the crime scene was unlike any that we have covered on this podcast. It was bizarre. And in Detective Cox's words, this was a scene that, quote, the killer or killers wanted us to find and not necessarily a crime scene, end quote. So there could have, the bodies could have been moved? I don't, so what he means by not necessarily a crime scene is that it's not typical Meaning, because it was cleaned up, 
it's hard to like a lot of the evidence that you would find in a typical crime scene you could tell exactly where different things occurred uh-huh. and you can't here mm. and i don't know with 100 confidence whether there were one perpetrator or more than one but for many reasons i personally now detective cox never said this he would always say perpetrator or perpetrators right Mm -hmm. suspect or suspects i personally feel there were more than one Mm -hmm. and that is a possibility right so when i'm discussing the scene with you maggie i'm going to use the plural pronoun they okay because that's my personal conviction okay so bill and peggy lived in a community that had like certain safety precautions. So you would have to normally be buzzed in to be let oh, in. That's how my nanny's apartment was. You had to buzz in mm-hmm. and she would come over the little intercom and they had like a special TV station at her apartment complex that they could see the buzz in area, uh-huh. the lobby area to make sure mm-hmm. they knew who they were letting up. Now I will say I did ask about the buzz-in system because nothing I read clarified anything about it. Mm. Um, And this buzz-in system did not have video. It was only audio. Okay. So, I mean, I feel like they have company at their house or their apartment pretty regularly. So I don't think they would have been concerned with someone coming unannounced and buzzing in to their apartment. Until you hear what time the crime occurred. Oh, alrighty. So I'll get to that in a minute. But speaking of this buzzing in system, because I do feel like it's important. According to Detective Cox, that safety measure that was provided by the condominium community, right? They don't necessarily know because there's no way of knowing whether that buzz in system was something that was actually attempted by those who entered, So what I'm getting at is it could have been the case that the Stevensons were buzzed and then they let whomever it was into the building, Mm -hmm. right? That would lead me to say that then the Stevensons knew the person or persons Mm -hmm. involved, right? They would have had to have a, a, a reason to buzz the person in. But alternatively, because access to like the the hallway and I feel like a lot of buildings that have the buzz-in system once somebody buzzes them in it kind of gives somebody access to an entire building or an entire hallway so it could have been somebody else in the building who buzzed them in but then that would imply that either Bill and Peggy's door wasn't locked or they would have had to have picked the lock to enter but nobody From what I read in my research, nobody in the apartments around heard or saw anything. And I also want to mention here that there's also the very real possibility that the door was opened for them by someone inside. Again, you wouldn't have to buzz in. Or that the point of entry was from the sliding glass door on the back concrete patio of the Stevenson's condo. So they were like on the ground level? Right. So even though there's a buzz-in system, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way the perpetrator or perpetrators got in. Okay. So I originally wondered, 
because Bill was a truck stop preacher, if maybe he made it a practice of bringing people into his home to like Uh. feed them, give them a place to sleep. Because then I feel like the search for your potential perpetrator is quite large. Yeah. And I just feel like we hear lots of sad stories that take place at truck stops. So maybe Mm -hmm. that could have, that he could have met the wrong one at the wrong time. Right. So that was my initial inclination is I wonder if he invited somebody back to his home. And while Detective Cox did acknowledge that the list of those who could be looked at in this crime was extremely large and widespread, Bill and Peggy's daughter, Beth, said that her mom was extremely leery of strangers in their home and that Bill would have never invited anyone they didn't know into their home. Hmm. So that, to me, eliminated that possibility. Mm -hmm. Now, Beth said, you know, of course, someone could have followed him home, right? Mm -hmm. But that even if her dad were bringing someone, like, to visit his home church, he would have picked them up from the truck stop, taken them to church, and then brought them straight from the church back to the truck stop. Okay. There wouldn't have been any way for them to, like, really know where they lived. Right. And remember how I said, you know... This was especially odd because of the time. Mm -hmm. The crime, their murders, took place between 1 and 4 in the morning on May 29th. Okay, well, my granny was like 81, I think, when she passed away. And she was in the bed by like 8 p.m. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm... I'm already in the bed by (laughs) So that makes it even more odd to me. So you have that. The crime took place between one and four. And knowing how much Peggy was against inviting those that they didn't personally know into their home, that's what makes me think that they themselves wouldn't have just buzzed anybody in if, Mm -hmm. in fact, that is how somebody got in. And I, so in my head, again, I'm always trying to hypothesize. And I'm like, well, maybe they were in the home from earlier right? Maybe Bill and Peggy let them in like at dinner time and then whoever did this just didn't leave. So I asked Detective Cox if he thought that maybe the perpetrators had been let into their home before those early morning hours. Because Mm -hmm. again, in my head, it being that late at night or early in the morning would have made Peggy even more concerned. But he believes that the murders occurred fairly soon after the perpetrator or perpetrators entered the residence. Okay. So he doesn't think they were just like hanging out all day there. Right. And one of the odd details about this case that we do know is that the person or persons responsible were in the residence for hours afterward. Oh, because you said they cleaned it up, right? Yes. And in addition to that, literally every room in their home had been staged. What? Something had been touched or altered or moved in every single room. Weird. Detective Cox and the Boone County Sheriff's Office have kept many of the details close to the vest. In this case, Maggie, in order to know who the true perpetrator is. Mm -hmm. But they have revealed that at some point, it is a possibility that the person or persons responsible left the residence 
perhaps to make sure that like no police were coming and then returned to the crime scene to stage it. Is that normal? That seems weird to me. No, it is not. And I'll get to the specifics about that in just a second. But that's one detail that led me to ask if there were more than one person involved. Because if you if this were a community where you had to be buzzed in, then how, how could you leave and then get back in? Because you'd have to get buzzed in again. Unless you left the back door open. True. And that's one possibility, right? It's possible that you left a door open. It's possible that if there were multiple people involved, then the others who were responsible buzzed the person back in or stayed at the crime scene the entire time. Or it's possible, again, if they're getting in some other way than buzzing in, that a different person or persons returned to the scene to stage and alter it. So all of those are possibilities. This is a very different case. Very different. And law enforcement, we know that that Bill and Peggy were both stabbed and bludgeoned to death. But law enforcement has never named with what object or objects Bill and Peggy were beaten. So we know that they were stabbed, Mm -hmm. but we don't know if the blunt force trauma were caused by the handle of the knife. And so there's only one murder weapon or if there were multiple. So regardless, law enforcement has not yet recovered the weapon or weapons, whether that's one, two, or even three objects. So obviously that's of utmost importance in this case is trying to find the murder weapon or weapons. And here's another super odd detail. So I keep saying between one and four Mm -hmm. is when the crime occurred, right? Interestingly, Maggie, police know the exact time at which they were murdered because of a medical device that was implanted in one of the pair. But they have not released that time to the public. They have just said that the crime occurred between one and four in the morning, like I mentioned earlier. Hmm. But Detective Cox, not in my interview, but in an interview that he did with Jennifer Knoll of Spectrum News, he said, quote, so whoever chose this because of the location, because of the time, Because of it being in a residence where people are above and next door, the one thing that is really, really obvious is that both Bill and Peggy had to die, end quote. This case is kind of giving me the creeps a little bit. Yeah. And I don't know if we've ever covered a case for which the time that it occurred was significant. Mm Mm-hmm. If I'm, because you know, I like to psychoanalyze and break things down. And if I were to break down that statement because of the time, it was obvious that both of them had to die. It makes me think that it had to be a time that was significant to the both of them. What do you mean? I'm speculating again here that maybe the time matched something like. A date that was important to them, like an anniversary or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
And obviously, time, because all Detective Cox said was because of this time, refers not just to the clock time, but also the date and the day of the week. And Detective Cox did clarify one thing in my interview with him. Here's what he stated. Quote, we have vetted that date over and over and over and continue to do that, especially with it being Memorial Day weekend, May 29th, 2011, and with Bill having connections to the military. And quite honestly, we think more than the date being significant, we think that the day of the week was significant, the early morning hours of Sunday morning. We think that was probably used knowing by the person or persons who committed these crimes that they chose a Sunday morning because they thought that the bodies would definitely be found very quickly when they were missed for church. Both Bill and Peggy, which would have been unusual, and maybe even that someone from the church or someone not connected to the perpetrators would have found them, end quote. Okay, so this is just way above my level of thinking. Like, hence the reason I could never be a murderer, because I just could not put in, like, my brain cannot work like that. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just so much detail if you're even going down to the day of the week is significant, which, I mean, I'm sure helped because maybe you could narrow it down that way, but... I just guess I'm not smart enough to be a murderer. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, this particular crime scene is so complicated because of all of those. Every detail is important. You know what I mean? Yeah. The time, the date, the day of the week, you just know, everything. all of that, the staging. And speaking of all of that, it seems wild for me to think that whoever committed this crime was so comfortable at the scene that they could stay around for so long afterward. Mm -hmm. And makes me feel like maybe Bill and Peggy knew the person, or at least the person knew their way around the condo. So I too kind of get the feeling that they would have known the person. Because, I don't know, I just feel like there's so much that goes into play, like the date being significant, the day of the week being significant, the time. Like, I feel like they would have to know. Right. And another detail that, again, to me, indicates that the killers knew the Stevensons or at least knew their condo is that Detective Cox revealed that the Stevensons' residence was in the rear of the community in which they lived. So you mentioned earlier about it being random. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't want to go, I would never say that. Because most random attackers aren't going to go to the rear of the community. Yeah, Yeah, they're not going to go to a place like the Stevenson's home for which there's only one way in and one way out. Mm And per my discussion with Detective Cox, their condo was in the back of a residential development that butts up to other residential developments. So there aren't even like businesses around. This isn't a busy area. There's not a gas station where you could be like, oh, it makes sense. It's, you know, somebody's going to be there at one in the morning. Mm -hmm. He said that there's an access road to that condo community 
that has even like a geographical barrier. There's this large mound that in height kind of almost comes to the top of the structure. So it would block the condos, like the view to the backyards, right? Yeah, but that could be strategic, correct? Yeah. And so one would have had to have known where to enter on that road, would have had to have go by the club, gone by the clubhouse, and then drive all the way to the end of the street to get to their condo. Mm. So again, they had to have known where it was. This is not random. Right. But then again, you know, most attackers aren't going to stick around for hours afterward either. Yeah, that's weird. And you were like, that can't be common. And that's one of the questions that I asked Detective Cox. I said, you know, in your years of experience, and again, he is an experienced veteran officer. If he had ever seen a case like this one or how what percentage of cases he has seen where the perpetrator didn't flee immediately. And he said, quote, that one individual characteristic of this murder case puts it in the 1%. That's a term that FBI has used when we profiled this with their guys. Also, the VDOC Society did the same thing. They said, wow, this is one of those one percenters. So it's very unusual, end quote. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. So, and I feel like that is also another clue because I feel yeah. like it would take a, a different kind of perpetrator mm -hmm. for that to happen. Yeah. Like, I feel like so, there's so many things that set this case apart from a normal case that, you know, might be covered, but that it's just, I don't know, it's just baffling. Mm hmm. And, you know, Remember, he said they feel like the murders occurred pretty quickly after mm -hmm. the perpetrator or perpetrators entered the residence. But, you know, they're there for hours afterwards. And we know that for one particular reason I'll tell you about in just a second. But in the time that they were in the home after murdering both Bill and Peggy, they were busy, Maggie. One of, it, it seems to me at least, the primary purposes of this rearranging or altering or staging or whatever you want to call it was to obscure, as Detective Cox acknowledged to me that it did, the absolute identifiable point of entry. Oh, like we can't say like, yeah, they for sure came through front door, the back door, a window or whatever. Right. So part of the staging was to almost make it look like any of those could have happened. Mm. So then we don't know for sure. And do you remember how I said that not a single room wasn't touched? Yeah. So most of the description in my research was pretty vague because, again, they're keeping a lot of details close to the vest. Mm -hmm. But in that interview with Jessica Knoll, um, Detective Cox had said, quote, there were things that were maybe on end tables or up on shelves that were changed, altered, moved, turned over, marked on. There were items that seemed to have no significant meaning left in different rooms. Most of the items that were left at the scene appeared to be things that were probably in the residence, end quote. So basically, they're maybe knocking a picture over or moving something from an end table to a shelf. Or from one room to another. Mm -hmm. But from items that were already in the home. 
And here's how we really know that they were there. Not only does do those sorts of things take time, right? Mm-hmm. But at least one of the couple was inflicted with a post-mortem injury during that time, an injury that occurred up to three hours after their death. Wow. And I, I didn't read what the injury was, but since that detail hasn't been released, I feel like it had to have been an additional clue. Yeah, it's important. Mm-hmm. Now, many people might look at the crime scene and think, well, with all these items rearranged or moved, that maybe that would give a clue as to who had murdered Bill and Peggy Stevenson. But motive is a bit more complicated. In one article that I read, they said that, you know, some easy to see and reachable values were left untouched. So robbery doesn't seem to be the motive. Okay. So like the case last week. Right. And then exactly where... Um, Jason's laptop system. Right, exactly. Other people have wondered, because of the altered items, if maybe somebody who committed the crime, because Bill and Peggy were so religious, did it for ritualistic or cult purposes. Hmm. But from, and again, I didn't ask Detective Cox about this, and I don't know for sure if that can be ruled out, but it, it doesn't seem from the research that I did that that's the case either. Right. Detective Cox did tell Jessica Knoll in that interview, quote, the baffling part, obviously, is what I've described. And I say, we don't have a crime scene. We have a scene that our perpetrators wanted us to find. So what they had the opportunity to do was to stage things in the scene to look like different motives, end quote. So basically... These, the perpetrator, perpetrators have moved things around Mm -hmm. so that we don't know what the motive is because nothing is where it should be. So we can't really tell why they did what they did. Right. Yeah. So they've strategically staged the scene, I guess, for law enforcement because it's unclear the exact point of entry. It's unclear exactly what the motive is. Well, I feel like this is not this person or person's first rodeo. I feel like that's what I would think too. They've had to have done this before. I mean, are they just really good at deception? Right. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. 
But according to my interview with Beth, she believes that the killers were not professionals. And this, you know, she believes this despite the fact that so many things were altered. There weren't fingerprints left behind. Like the scene was clean. But this is where Detective Cox kind of separates himself. He noted that they have not ruled out the possibility of this being a professional job. And and he acknowledged that, you know, by professional, there are lots of different ways that you could take that. Mm-hmm. So there could have been someone who was paid to commit the murders. They're not ruling that out. This could have been a crime committed by individuals who had committed hits before. They're not ruling that out. Detective Cox does believe that while they're not willing to give the information to the public, that he, and he was like, I don't want to, because this is an opinion. He was like, I don't want to put this on my partner as well. But he, he, Detective Cox, feels like he has an idea as to the motive and that he feels like the alterations were a message. He told Mike Dardis of WLWT in a separate interview, quote, I realize, talking to the perpetrator, I guess, you're not going to sit down and tell us I did this. This is why I did this. But the why is part of what you want us to know, part of the message you were trying to get to us. And I would ask you to communicate. I will work with you. I will communicate with you in some social forum, end quote. And so I asked Detective Cox whether all those different items that were altered or arranged or what moved or whatever, if it was a pattern or if it was just random, because to me, that says two totally different things. Mm -hmm. And it seems that his answer to that question, as with most details in this case, is complicated. (laughs) So he said yes and no. (laughs) was basically what he said. So he said that some of the items were purposeful and some of them were random. So while there were certain items um, altered in a random fashion, that there were themes that were consistent in relation to the items that were moved or altered. So, like, so maybe may- all of the spiritual items were moved in a certain way. Right. And he didn't say mm-hmm. what the items were, but he said that there were patterns from room to room as it related to similar items in different rooms throughout the house. So, their positioning might have been consistent from room to room based on what the item was. This is so in-depth and I feel like I'm not doing a very good job of giving commentary on this case because I'm just trying to wrap my brain around how crazy this case is. Mm -hmm. I know and and it's so complicated and Detective Cox even said though that at the same time there were those themes and patterns right as Mm -hmm. it might relate to room to room and a similar object or item that Additionally, much of the alteration was done with the purpose to confuse and particularly to confuse the investigators who came to process the crime scene. So a lot of it was also done without rhyme or reason. Hmm. So at the same time you have themes and patterns, you have things done, you know, random. Mm -hmm. 
And Detective Cox even went so far as to say that perhaps some of the items that were moved were, to use his words, because of, quote, the particular psyche of the individual or individuals, that subconscious touch that would tell us a little bit about the killer or killers, end quote. So as in, like, what the patterns were maybe what items removed or where they replaced could tell us more about who did this right the the person or motives or things like that Hmm. so obviously as to what the patterns were what the items were or their positions that would be pure speculation on my part and if we're honest just like you, Maggie, I can't even begin yeah. to guess what what it was. Because, like, I'm picturing my granny's house. And she had so much stuff and so many whatnots. Mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't even begin to know what it could have been in their home. Right. Other than knowing that in my head, and again, this is about as far as I'll go in my speculation, is that whatever it was, if there was a pattern of an object from room to room, then it would have to at least be an object that Bill and Peggy owned a lot of multiple of. Yeah. In August of 2012, the Kentucky state police crime lab made a potential breakthrough in the case when they found DNA Hmm. on several items from the crime scene. I know. So super hopeful that DNA profile was submitted to CODIS, but it didn't have any hits. According to detective Cox, The DNA samples are also a bit complex. So while obviously it offers a DNA profile, whatever sample was found is not suitable for genealogy testing, which is when they can identify somebody by a relative's DNA. Yeah, people are totally against that. Right. Nor was this DNA sample suitable for phenotyping, which is when they can determine things like height and hair color and all of that stuff. Law enforcement, though, has not disclosed why the DNA is complicated. Right. I feel like it's either good DNA or not. Right. I mean, that's what I would think. So I did my own research about why DNA could be complicated Mm -hmm. in certain ways. And the biggest reason that I found was that the sample could be a mixture of DNA from separate individuals. If my DNA somehow mixed with your DNA, mixed with Anthony's, mixed with Rodney's, whatever. And so that complicates that DNA sample. So it, it could be a sample from two or more individuals involved. Right. And so, again, that's why in in my mind, it's more than one. Yeah. Perpetrators. And I wanted to add here, I feel like when we hear perpetrators, our mind automatically goes to two, but there could have been more than two as well. Right. Because you said someone could have just came to help rearrange stuff. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Detective Cox said that, and I respect this so much that there have been many suspects in this case for one primary reason. And that is because his partner and he believe in his words, quote, 
every situation where we, we receive information related to a possible suspect, that it's our job to believe that, okay, that's the person who did it. And then we go out, they have to prove to us somehow by documentation, some hard fact, that this is not the person who did it. So even though we have our theory from the beginning of the case, which is still there, and which circumstantial evidence points toward, when we get information on a new suspect, then it's our job to shut all of those walls down and say, this is the guy who did it, and let's go get it out of him, end quote. They have to look at each tip with a fresh set of eyes. And I think that's really great because we've talked about that in several cases, that investigators are so certain that it's person A, that really it could be person B, but they're so set on it being A that they can't see it any other way. Mm-hmm. I think and I great. feel like I get the, yeah, I get the feeling that Detective Cox and his partner are the opposite of that. They are very willing to look at it, each new tip that comes in until it is fully vetted. Mm -hmm. And they have actually vetted over 90 people in this case. Wow. Yeah. So a lot in the last 10 years. And again, you know, I don't think I mentioned the specific town, but this is near Florence, Kentucky and, and Boone County. Florence, y'all, for those of you not from Kentucky, there's a water tower. <laughs> and I think I always heard it originally said Florence Mall. Yeah, I did too. I don't know if that's correct. I don't know. But now it says Florence, y'all. So yeah. that's how Florence is known. It's Florence, y'all. But it makes it even, not to say that small town, obviously, law enforcement isn't impressive always. But it makes it even more impressive to me how far they have gone in investigating this case. Mm -hmm. So over 90 people have been vetted where they have taken DNA samples, fingerprints, and Detective Cox actually told me that he's pretty sure at this point he and his partner have traveled to 15 different states wow. to interview suspects. Mm -hmm. And they aren't slowing down. I feel like Detective Cox needs some type of recognition he needs an award, Absolutely. a plaque. Yes. Or or even on, and I, I think probably the best recognition for him, if I had to speak for him from, from what I gather, would be if somehow the story got national news mm -hmm. attention. Yeah. You know, and he could get answers. I think that's what he wants more than anything. But I personally do feel like you do, Maggie, that he needs some sort of commendation for the role that he's played. Mm -hmm. And he actually... You could tell how humble he is because he was commending Sheriff Helmig and his dedication to the case mm -hmm. as well. Because he said that his sheriff has never said no to him when he or his partner has asked for resources to pursue a lead. And that Sheriff Helmig's commitment is one of the reasons why this case has never gone cold. Well, outstanding job, yes. City of Florence. Yes. So... Obviously, this case is super complicated. There are a couple of theories, my theories okay. in this case. So one of them I bring up, even though I'm going to dismiss it. I'll go ahead and tell you that, this first one. And that is the Stevenson's nephews. And this theory is twofold. There were two nephews of Bill and Peggy, and they both come from large families. So they had lots of relatives 
Okay. But there were two nephews who were living in Texas who will remain unnamed because they were cleared of any involvement. But a tip came in really early on, within the first 24 to 48 hours, that they could be involved. But Detective Cox and his partner traveled there, conducted interviews, collected DNA, and those nephews have been crossed off the list. Well, if Doc, if Detective Cox says they need to be crossed off, then I, too, believe they need to be crossed off. Yeah, yeah. He said that one of them was in Kentucky close to the time of the murders, but neither they had evidence to prove that neither one of them were in Kentucky when the murders occurred. The second side to the Stevenson nephew theory is a separate nephew. And again, they came from large families. So there were lots yeah, of Yeah, it sounds like mine where I have like 21 yeah. first cousins. That's kind of like their family. So this nephew, I will say his name, Charles Stevie Stevenson. He was arrested and convicted for a murder that took place about 10 months after Bill and Peggy Stevenson. And so that's one theory. Mm. As soon as people hear Bill and Peggy Stevenson's case, they're like, oh, Stevie Stevenson, look at him. And the reason they say that is because he had broken into a home of 67-year-old Lee Jennings, who lived in Indiana, and he had beaten her to death. And he was sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole for that crime. So... Maggie, because the victim was an older woman, and because she'd been because she had been, yep, beaten by an object from the home, because he was a member of the Stevenson family, so someone who, if if the perpetrator or perpetrators had been buzzed in, would have been someone that they knew, right? But he was an early suspect, and I had asked Beth. And this is one of the questions that I always ask when I interview someone. And I always say, is there anything that you feel has been misleading about media coverage, you know, of Mm -hmm. the case or anything that, that you would want to add that you feel has been left out? And so I asked Beth to clarify that, too, if she felt that there were any misconceptions. And she said, yes, the first thing that she mentioned was how many people believe that Stevie Stevenson was the perpetrator even though, and this is according to Beth, he had been cleared of involvement. And so she said, the biggest misconception is that so many people think that her parents' case is solved because her cousin was arrested. Mm -hmm. But again, that arrest was in connection to a completely different crime, right? He was arrested for that murder in Indiana. His arrest was not related to Bill and Peggy Stevenson. Again, that's like what I was saying. People get so focused on one or two individuals, they can't see past that. Mm -hmm. And law enforcement has visited Stevie Stevenson in prison multiple times when they get new tips that give even slightly different information. Mm -hmm. And Detective Cox said they have gone through the vetting process with him over and over. But he said... There are a few people that they've not been able to take off the board. But in terms of this crime, he believes Stevie Stevenson is not their suspect. Okay, well, if he says it, I believe it. Agreed. So theories two and three. Again, this is my speculation. Theory two would be somebody from the truck stop. Mm -hmm. So one tip that had come in 
that made law enforcement hone in on the truck stop was a tip that there was a truck driver who used to live in northern Kentucky and then moved to California. And in this article I read, law enforcement was able to track him down and collect a DNA sample, which they have submitted to the state crime lab. But according to an article by Jessica Schmidt for Fox 19, which was published only two months ago, Maggie, Mm. on May 27th, 2021, they might have to wait a while for those DNA results to come back. Do we know why? In Kentucky, there is a backlog of DNA testing to be done Mm. um, for multiple reasons. But they have submitted the DNA. The DNA has not come back yet. Okay. So that potentially could be an answer. Potentially. But this is a hard theory though, to me. I mean, obviously it could have been a trucker, right? But then how would they have gotten, didn't you say earlier that they left and came back? Well, they could have. Yes. But if he, so a truck stop, wouldn't he be in the giant truck? Right. And I feel like that's way more noticeable. So then I'm thinking it couldn't just be any random truck driver. In my head, it would have had to have been somebody who had lived in the area. Right. Right. Who had a different vehicle or who had come through quite often. Because again, just like I talked about earlier, the person would or persons would have had to have known the area and the building. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, of course, is possible. Right. Right. Theory three would be somebody close to the family, somebody who knew the Stevensons well, or someone with a link to Bill's ties to the military. So the person or persons who committed this crime knew where the Stevensons lived. They knew which community. They knew which building. They had to have, in my mind, overpowered the couple without alarm. Because none of the neighbors heard anything. And they wanted to kill both Bill and Peggy because otherwise they would have lured Bill away from the truck stop. I mean, all they had to say to him was, let's go fishing. Yeah, exactly. Right. And they could have lured him away. Or if they knew Bill was at the truck stop, then whoever did this would have known that Peggy would be home alone. But they chose a time when they would both be home. And from what I read, they chose a specific and a personal time. They inflicted a post-mortem injury, which to me Mm -hmm. seems much more personal. Mm -hmm. Though, I will say whether the perpetrator or perpetrators had a more focused target because of the post-mortem injury on one individual of the couple than the other was something that Detective Cox would not delve into. But we do know that they stuck around after the crime, right, or returned after the crime. They were there for a while. They arranged items in the home that they cleaned up afterward. And so, again, because of the quote-unquote strategy involved Mm -hmm. and the personal nature of a lot of it, that it wasn't random, obviously this theory is that, again, it was somebody close to them, somebody who knew them, or somebody who had links to one of them yeah i've sort i sort of feel the same way i don't know i mean maybe it 
could be a combination of both. Like it is a person from the truck stop that Bill got to know. And so they know significant moments in their life, you know, because we know the time was significant. You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. This this one's bizarre. It is very bizarre. Detective Cox did say that they had, just like in that one article, that they had recently submitted a DNA sample specifically for one-to-one comparison, that they submitted that sample on May 6th of this year and that they're waiting for the results. But just like I mentioned earlier, because of a backlog, because of the necessary prioritizing of some samples needing testing completed more quickly, and because of high turnover at the state lab, they are still waiting for those results. But I just pray that the results can finally be a breakthrough that's needed in this case. Beth told me that her parents' funeral was held at a church that could guest 1,200 people and that nearly every seat was filled. Bill and Peggy Stevenson touched a lot of lives and influenced a lot of people, but their legacy remains. Bill's friends recall that he would just walk into their home for a chat. They would even leave their garage door open to give him easier access. They miss seeing Bill's smiling face as he walked in for a visit. Their memories remain. An even more tangible legacy is the one left in Jackson, Kentucky, at the Happy Church. According to Beth, a woman from the church, one in rural Kentucky that her father visited often, had asked Bill if he would help her show how to garden because she wanted the church to provide a community garden for those in the area. Her dad immediately went to get a rototiller to take down there and to aid in this goal. After her parents' death, Beth received a photograph of a little boy grinning ear to ear holding a tomato that could barely fit in his two hands. That tomato was from a garden that her father had shown the woman how to grow. The literal fruits of their spiritual labor remain. The Stevenson family make a yearly trip down to McDowell, Kentucky, to help with the God's Appalachian Partnership, the Gap Ministry. They go every Christmas to bring food and toys to those in need. Their kindness remains. Do clues remain as well? If you know anyone from the northern Kentucky area who has friends there or who once frequented there, please share Bill and Peggy's story with them. Beth wanted me to urge you to call in any detail that you remember, maybe someone acting odd or not wanting to hear about the case. She would rather you give detectives details that they've heard before and would be able to cross it off the list rather than them not getting that detail at all. Put yourself in the shoes of the family. Detective Cox had a message as well, before the perpetrators. Here it is in his own words. I would love to know that our perpetrator or perpetrators are listening to a podcast, whether it's yours or someone else. And I would, I always throw out the invitation. There are many ways that they can communicate with me anonymously. And uh, I'd love to communicate with them. They obviously had some message that they wanted to convey or um, definitely maybe they want in some way that a lot of people wouldn't understand, but they want credit for what they've done. And the best way I know to do that is 
I'm always here. If someone wants to speak to me, there's lots of ways that they can do it, and they can do it anonymously, um, especially with burner phones. I've mentioned that many times before, and people who are in the criminal element, they know how to go about that. There are lots of cheap phones out there that you can use to make one phone call and get rid of. Sometimes law enforcement might just need the right clue, as small as that clue may be, or someone else to corroborate a memory. Be that person. Be a part of their legacy as well. By helping their family and the detectives who have worked so tirelessly on this case to finally find justice. The Stevenson family is offering a $50,000 reward leading to the arrest or arrests of those responsible for killing Bill and Peggy. Anyone with information concerning the case has various ways to give that information. If you are incarcerated, you can reach Detective Cox by calling 844-210-1111 without having to use your calling card. Anyone else wanting to provide tips is asked to call the Boone County Sheriff's Office at 859-334-8496 or email them at stevensontip.com at boonecountyky.org. Again, please like and join us on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next next week. week. new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.